I was recently asked why I put so much time and effort into speaking about New Zealand's national security. The same reason you should, I replied. For our children, nieces, nephews and their children. Hi, I'm Simon Ewing Jarvi. It's our responsibility to live a better, safer, freer country than we inherited. And the only way that's going to happen is if ordinary citizens are involved in the national security conversation. That conversation should start with a comprehensive national security strategy being formulated, not the compartmentalised and under-resourced thinking which has been allowed to take hold, because that is indefensible New Zealand. So what will the world look like for international security in 2050? Well, depending again on what track you choose, uh, what data set and what experts you read, about 10 billion people and then it'll sort of plateau and start to drop away. Some will say a little bit. A little bit fewer. Um, two thirds of that world population increase from now will be in uh, Africa. So that'll be a growing, fast growing young continent, whereas everyone else will tending to be starting to plateau. Mm -hmm. But from a national security point of view, that's hugely important because lots of angry young people with not enough to do can create mayhem. Mm, yes. Also, two thirds of the world in 2050 will live in what's known as dense urban environments, you know, mega cities and that completely changes the combat environment or the policing environment or even the, the human, humanitarian assistance and relief environment. You think Mosul, you know, how long it took them to clear ISIS out of Mosul, mm. going building to building. And then just think about subterranean structures like the London Underground. Now you imagine if you've got a problem, you've got to go and stabilise a city where they've got a massive underground structure like the, under, the Underground of London, and sending how many soldiers would you need to go down there and operate underground never seeing the sky for you know, whatever time it takes. Mm. It's, we don't have any idea how complex that's going to be. No, in fact the only place that's been done really is in films and TV series. There's been a number where those have been the themes but I don't think nations really have planned for that situation ever. No, well interestingly it's changing. You, the US have now got five of their combat infantry brigades training to fight underground five of their 26. So it's, a, it's going to be a shift. So it's going to be a shift for our security forces, our defence force as well. What else is going to happen? Well, there's a whole lot of countries, you know, they call them tiger economies, uh, the rising rising wealth of the uh, developing countries, you know, the Thailands and Vietnams and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but that's also going to bring more players into the international security game, if you want to call it that. And they, uh, traditionally what happens is we're one, we're one uh, economic power supplants another one, there's conflict. Not always, but often. And we're seeing the potential for that with the US and China. It's not inevitable, but the, right, the, the change of the economic power is a significant driver. And we're going to see that with a whole lot of new players, because that's been historically what we've seen with a change in economic status. Um, so going along with that, there's going to be an increased number of um, inter and intra-state conflicts. And we're going to see an increasing involvement uh, of non-state actors, the ISILs and the uh, Al-Qaeda's of the world. And we're also going to see the growth of private security forces being involved in uh, these conflicts, simply because uh, many nations will choose not to um, conscript, call up, have to deal with body bags of their own citizens coming home, so it's easier to contract, you know, Renter Army Limited and, and what the implications are for traditional laws of uh, armed conflict, huge. So what will that mean for organisations like the United Nations? Well, uh, I think the United Nations is already seeing a, a 
donor fatigue from its uh, members in re regard to peacekeeping forces and that's going to get worse not better and look, all it would take to pull the rug out from under the, the peacekeeping operations within the UN is for a, a major depression to hit the US and potentially Europe and that's the major funding source for peacekeeping so yeah. even if the current situation existed I think it's going to be harder and harder to provide UN peacekeeping forces to an increasing number of conflicts. And I guess the question at the back of my mind is will it even have a useful function any longer and continue to exist? Well that's a good question because we saw how the League of Nations ended up it was deemed ineffective and so it was folded up and a new organisation started but we're going to have a, a discussion about the UN in another podcast mm -hmm. particularly about the power of the, the relevance of the five permanent members of the Security Council yes. and whether that will be its undoing. I talked about displaced people before there's about 80 million now and that's terrible it's only going to get worse and whichever side of the climate change debate you're on you can't deny the fact that there's countries that are um, increasingly getting soggy, like Bangladesh and some islands in the Pacific and so on. And you know, some, some projections are up to a billion. I've chosen the number 200 million climate refugees. Now, New Zealand could become a climate lifeboat, but that would be very, very contentious here. It would be. I think there'll be some a feeling of some obligation mm. to do something in that space, but just what tolerance there will be for large numbers coming to New Zealand is hard to ascertain. Well you only have to look at when they doubled from 750 to 1500 yeah. the reaction. Uh, what goes along with all this compl growing complexity and increased numbers is that there's going to be um, more work to do, that's what we were talking about in regard mm -hmm. to the UN um, peacekeeping forces and, and there's also an increased number of uh, battle domains and tasks so you know you've got uh, space, cyber, uh, increasing number of grey zone activities, uh, sort of thing like the, um, what's going on on the edge of the Ukraine uh, and the uh, annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, what's going on in the South China Sea. Grey zone operations, not conflict, plausible deniability, uh, but still having some effect shaping shaping other outcomes. Well, space is going to become hugely important mm. and that's uh, obvious by the fact that there's replacements for space stations going up. China's building one, America's about to build another one, and so on and so forth. Alternate GPS uh, networks. New Zealand, I see, has just signed up to the Artemis um, protocol about space exploration. And because we're one of the few countries in the world that has a space launch capability, mm. uh, we're going to be in that, in that business uh, whether we want to be or not, or in that discussion. All these are becoming more and more important, but still, they still don't replace kinetic warfare. So you can't say, oh, because we've got a really good cyber war department and we've got a really good uh, space operation and so on and so forth, the great diplomats that we don't need soldiers anymore, it's wrong. We're still going to have to have kinetic warfare, but it's not going to be anything like um, what we currently think it is. So what we've got at the moment is, a, for instance, a defence force that was... Uh, basically created for a different era. There's often the criticism that we constantly prepare for the war we've just had. Yeah, it's true. And um, again, to get away from that, there's going to need to be a lot of forward thinking about what will be needed, isn't there, from a security perspective? Yeah, and whether you can evolve basically the remnants of an army division, for instance, yes. into a 2050 useful force, or whether you create your 2050 useful force independently and eventually attract the conventional force and migrate across what you can 
is, a, is an interesting question. I'm, mm. I'm of the view that tr we haven't seen any evidence of the New Zealand's existing defence forces understanding the need to change enough, quickly enough. Stealth technology, for instance, everyone's being stealthy this and stealthy that and encryption and, and so on and so forth. All encryption can be broken. It's been demonstrated over and over and over again. And stealth, once there's a mil significant military presence in space, stealth gets really hard. And I think that the the only place you're actually able to be operate in a stealth environment by 2050 will be under the water. And yet we are sea blind. We argue about how many patrol uh, ships we, sh we should have. But mm. actually we're not addressing the fundamentals of we've got this massive massive block of water and there's going to be a lot of discussion in this podcast series about our sea blindness and the strategic importance of the ocean and what goes with that is the stealthiness of being able to be under it. Now, I'm not saying we're just going to rush out and get a whole lot of submarines but I am saying that we need to address the fact that that is the place where a whole lot of unseen you know, goings on is already going on and it's going to, we're going to have to get involved with it. And we're massively unprepared for that. Yeah, just totally. That's, that's not fair. We have got some subsurface capabilities from aircraft and ships now, but the problem is, if you go back to my original premise, that you can't be stealthy for very much longer on the surface of the water or in the air, those assets will disappear in a flash. So we've got significant changes coming in conventional warfare thinking. Uh, with the increase in autonomous systems, uh, non-lethal weapons are going to be important, especially fighting in dense urban environments, at least if you make a mistake and shoot uh, a civilian with a non-lethal weapon, the situation is usually recoverable. We're going to see probably an end to the utility of conventional tanks and artillery, largely because of the stealth factor. They won't survive one engagement. As I said earlier, infantry groupings will become smaller and with more specialised teams. and you know, you, you will be as strong as the next sapper <laughs> if you were in in 2050 with exoskeletons and other biomechanical modifications. Uh, but that'll include protective armour, uh, robotic wingmen. We've got it in the air already where a, an F-35, a P-8, where a P-8 Poseidon will operate with a loyal wingman, basically a drone flying as the second aircraft and it can operate a couple of them. I think we'll see that for infantry who can project avatars. So you don't have to stick your own head around the corner, you can stick a digital head around the corner and see what's there. Uh, we're going to have autonomous load bearing and logistics system and if you want a real simple analogy, uh, imagine a little robot dog who hangs out with you all the time and when you run out of ammunition can run back and go and get it and bring it back. <laughs> and you don't have to carry all, all the stuff that we traditionally now carry in our vests and armour and so on. Logistic systems will be largely autonomous at the front line, moving stuff back and forward. You won't have the CSM mustering up spare soldiers to carry rounds to the up to the front. It's a very different warfare, isn't it? Because it removes the individual from the front line of danger, essentially. Well, it doesn't completely remove them, but what it does do is it thins out the number of humans who are actually there. Mm. You're still going to need humans to make decisions in this environment, but it'll be quite a different kind of human. So. You've got, you know, I, I foresee the soldiers, for instance, the soldiers, sailors and airmen of 2050 and beyond to be some of our elite thinkers. Um, they'll have to be very, very quick thinkers. They'll have to understand uh, uh, empathetic responses. So they're dealing with a wide range. You, know, you go to a city of 29 million people, you're not going to send in people who just want to break things. So we're actually talking about recruiting quite a different, you know, soldier, sailor, airman than we're currently looking at. Uh, and that's going to be a huge challenge, that transition. And again, I, I think that I haven't seen enough evidence yet 
to say that this Defence Force could make that transition. Mm. There's no criticism of the people who are currently in it. They're recruited and trained for the task at hand, and they're doing that really, really well. The problem is it's not the task that's going to be in 2050. Uh, so what we're seeing is we're going to have largely decentralised command and control, so we need far less you know, people of higher rank there passing on orders and uh, put more people down uh, on the ground who can actually make decisions for themselves. We will see much less brawn and more brain required basically in all, um, all combat service personnel. And when you think that, that it's on track, some projections are that within this decade we'll have consistent, accurate, empathetic responses from robots, they'll have, they'll have help. So we've already started discussing some of the so what's, but and I know that you'll delve into a lot of these topics in a lot more detail in subsequent podcasts, mm. but if you had to summarise the so what based on what New Zealand is going to look like in 2050 and what, what the world situation is likely to look like in the same time frame, how would you summarise that? Well, New Zealand um, will be, I think, on the precipice of success or failure. Mm-hmm. And the reasons for that will be that we will have not yet resolved our inter- the need for change, our internal change, and done something about it. Because traditionally, parliaments with you know short-term political thinking, three-year cycles, have kicked for touch on anything that might get them de-elected. I think that also there'll be such complexity. We think the world's complex now. There'll be such complexity in 2050 in the world through all the things that we've covered and others that there'll be probably a strong hankering in New Zealand to hang on to the old and try and be a little bit homesteady. And that Mm. would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. Uh, And the fact is, it's a case with any sort of dream homesteads or lifestyle, if you're not prepared to defend it, someone eventually will come and take it off you. And I I read with despair these defence reviews that come out every, assessments that come out every five years or so, that say, uh, there's no no likelihood in the near future of anyone um, of, of New Zealand being directly attacked. Well, that's such industrial age thinking mm. that you've actually got to have a landing craft like in Normandy, you know, come across uh, Pahia, Pahia Beach and, and some troops from whatever bogeyman country, you know, rush ashore. That's, that's old thinking. And what we need to understand is that if the ships stop sailing in the Malacca Strait, and if the ships stop sailing through the Suez Canal, it's going to be a very lonely place to live down here. Yeah. And we've already seen a microcosm of it with COVID-19. We're still experiencing it with supply chain problems. We need to just take that learning and put it forward into a national security threat. We can be directly attacked without anyone landing a foot on the shore. That's right. As technology improves, New Zealand is a much more accessible part of the world than it has been. Yep. And with access to Antarctica and the fact that we've got a US-owned space launch program here, we'd be naive to think that we're not actually a viable target. Finally, um, just wanted to talk about veterans because it's a subject near and dear to our hearts. And veterans actually, in my view, form an important part of the national security picture because they, uh, firstly, they've served. Some of them are still serving. And so they have the operational experience on which we can draw for future challenges. They're the only people that do and it's in our interest to, to to preserve that, as well as to make sure that we put them back in the in the condition that they were roughly before they served the country as best as we can. And I'm going to have specific episodes about veterans. But let's just look at the track. So we know we've got about 30,000 veterans, more or less, uh, now, and most of them will... Um, so I'm 
probably at the upper end of the contemporary veteran scale. So in 30 years, I'd be you know, 90 something. So you can get an idea of how it's going to sort of drop mm. off. You know, uh, I was at the start of the contemporary veteran wave, if you like, coming through in the 80s. What we're going to have to look at is three different scenarios. One is uh, that we just do um, basically walls of choice. So UN peacekeeping, we send some people um, to the Middle East and we send some people here and there uh, in small numbers as military observers for the UN. Uh, and so on that basis, in the odd platoon, the odd company, we could generate maybe up to 500 veterans a year. So you do the maths on that, that's 15,000. In 30 years time, yep. yep that, so we're going to generate 15,000 over the next 30 years. So the second scenario is, is one that will be quite contentious for some, and that's um, troops used in terms of support to the civil power for civil unrest in New Zealand. Now just think about that three nations model. And just think about the haves and have-nots, the wealth gap widening, and just think about underpopulated regions, overpopulated Auckland, and 30% unable to participate fully in the workforce because of lack of ability or lack of achievement at school. All the all the makings are there for for conflict. For conflict. And if you think New Zealand soldiers, sailors, and airmen wouldn't be involved in dealing with this sort of thing, I'll just give you two things to think about: 1951 wolf strikes and the uh, Springbok riots, Springbok rugby tour riots. So it's entirely possible that anything could trigger a situation where we would use troops in New Zealand to keep keep the peace basically. Under that situation we, you could easily double your veterans numbers to 30,000. Likewise if you had a small regional conflict and we've seen um, we've seen troops to Tonga, we may yet have to send troops to Samoa. Uh, we would have sent troops to Fiji if they didn't outnumber us. Um, and We've been to Bougainville, been to Solomons, there's a whole lot of uh, potential flashpoints in the area before you go further afield. I think it's likely, for instance, we are going to have to send substantial numbers into West Papua before long. Yes. Uh, that's shaping up just like East Timor did, and we ended up sending 3,000 there over you know, a relatively short period of time. Yes, I don't think we could say no to that as no. a country. No, because Australia will definitely yeah. be involved and yeah. we're going to be drawn in. Uh, and then further afield, so, so you, don't have to, you don't have to look to the South China Sea to go and find a reason to go and fight a fight. But these are all walls of choice, up to the point as you make that some of them we won't actually have that much choice um, about. So, 30,000 or more veterans, now we're getting up to the size of a small city. Yes, yeah. That's double what we've got now. And then large scale conflicts, global or regional, uh, heaven forbid, but it's... Um, it's possible. I, well, it's, it's actually, I think a regional conflict is more likely than not. Uh, when you've got countries like North Korea, Iran, uh, that's not our region, I know. But we've sent people there before yeah. because of our obligation around the United Nations table. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And so what sort of numbers, if we were looking at that third scenario, large-scale conflict, what sort of numbers do you think we're talking about there in terms of veterans? Well, I've, I've based it on how many we deployed to each of the world wars. Yes. And so you, and we're not just talking about soldiers, sailors and airmen, we're talking about the whole whole of government, so your intelligence operators, medical staff. You know, 150,000 isn't unbelievable. I mean, we said 100,000 just to the First World War. And it was when our population was tiny. Yeah, when it was, when it was a million, yeah. Mm. So I think that between 150 and 350,000, now 350,000 is the total number, more or less, of war graves in New Zealand today. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. Hmm. Yeah. So that's uh, those are the three tracks that the veterans community can go down, and we are really only geared up for track one. 
yes. in terms of our support to veterans now. We can cope with a few peacekeepers coming back every now and then. We have no way to scale up easily and we have, uh, we actually don't even have sufficient services to cover all the need across the veterans community we have now and that's subject for another day in detail. Right, well thank you Simon, that's fascinating thinking. It's interesting sitting here as if you do have a crystal ball isn't it? Mm. And taking the, the things that we know about now and then making forward projecting assumptions. The thing that strikes me is that we're massively underprepared for what the future might hold and I don't see much forward planning at that political level let alone anywhere else happening and that leadership is crucial. No, the environment is changing faster than we're evolving. Oh well, we look forward to discussing a lot of these issues in more detail in subsequent podcasts. That's it for this episode of Indefensible New Zealand. Thanks for joining the National Security Conversation. If you found this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and share it with your friends. For more information on New Zealand's national security or to send in questions for the series, please go to my website, unclass.com. Thank you.